0: Introducing Ecoin, a new currency for a new era. Ecoin gives you access to unique member perks, exclusive content, and so much more. Visit us on the web today and join the future with Ecoin. Hello, friend.
1: Hello, friend. I'm so excited to be here today with Henry to talk about Mr. Robot season three. Hey, Henry.
2: Hey, Margaret. It's back. Mr. Robot is on the air again.
1: Oh my goodness. I can't believe it. This episode, the premiere episode is called essentially powersavemode.h, pretty fast paced, directed by Sam Esmael and written by Sam Esmael, the show creator. And I thought it was interesting to notice that Christian Slater and Rami Malik are both credited as producers on this particular episode, at least. So that's pretty cool. What did you think overall?
2: A great way to uh, start the season. It kind of made certain things very clear, introduced uh, some other question marks that I'm sure they're going to spend a good chunk of the season unraveling. Uh, but after the disappointment that I felt with season two, I was really excited to see all the different pieces into in play uh, at the start of season three.
1: To kick off our discussion, I thought it would be fun to break down the meaning of the title because it's always a little mini computer science lesson in every title. And so, as you know, Power Save Mode is... A way of extending the life of something, namely your oops, your cell phone, your mobile phone, or your uh, laptop, and then the .h extension, as you know, is something that's used for header files in C code programming. So, woohoo!
2: So, is is the episode an instruction to enter power save mode to shift something into power save mode? Because if so, it's well timed heading into the weekend.
1: Oh yeah, because. A little bit of context. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to head into power save mode. We're heading into the weekend. You and I happen to be in the Bay Area, and the air quality is pretty low because of the Napa fires. So I feel like I've been in power save mode all week, just trying to uh, reserve my energy and ex- extend my life. <laughs> so it's a pretty interesting timing.
2: Yeah, and all week long, I've been hearing about how the air quality is as bad as it is in Beijing. But then it's not like people in Beijing spend all their time indoors, right? Like you and I probably took it pretty slow this week. Didn't spend a lot of time walking around outside. Uh, But people in Beijing have to go outside all the time. They don't have the luxury of kind of camping out indoors waiting for it to get better.
1: It's true. And I have noticed the past few days in San Francisco, more people are wearing those uh, air filter masks. And I'm honestly close to getting one myself because it really hasn't felt to be walking around.
2: Yeah. And for people who have breathing conditions or other things, it's it's not a, a great environment to be in. And it definitely puts the Bay Area into more of dystopian mode. I was reading something earlier this week uh, on social media about someone who visited the city after some time away and they just remarked on the disparity between the rich and the poor and how it was this kind of techno dystopia with super high tech wealth right next to just you know developing world poverty. Uh it's uh, pretty striking. And then you add the smoke and the haze and all of that onto it. And it does seem fairly uh blade runner-ish.
1: You're not the first person who said that, Henry. And can I just divert this discussion to illustrate what you're saying with something I experienced yesterday right in downtown San Francisco? Sure. So early in the morning as you you've probably seen the sky is bright orange because of all of the smoke from the fires that is drifting into San Francisco from miles away, right? And speaking of that article you read, I read that article as well about how San Francisco is sort of a dystopian tech, techno, techno dystopia, I think is what you said. And I was passing by the Google San Francisco office. They have one that's right up on the water by the Embarcadero. They actually have a couple locations in San Francisco, and there was a homeless. Uh, man who was who more than just passed out uh, and more than just asleep or just resting. He was pretty much passed out flat on his face. I thought he was dead. And so I went, I was, I went through a series of calling a bunch of different phone numbers uh, till I finally found the right department that would do a wellness check for him. But, I, but just the context of being in this smoke-filled environment The sky was no longer orange. It was sort of a hazy, overcast smog, very much like what you'd see in Beijing. It smells like a campfire. And to see this man literally passed out in the window which is a mirror window so it's a reflective window it looks like a mirror so he it was a re- his reflection was in the mirror it was really striking and to see people kind of stepping over him heading into work heading into the office it was incredible to see that and he finally moved so i discovered he wasn't dead but it like after half an hour so i don't know what what was wrong with him but but i thought the smoke was so devastating as well if you're vulnerable at all uh, you know, if you have asthma or anything, could be really bad. It did feel like I was in the middle of a Blade Runner-esque city.
2: That mental image that you create when you talk about the people kind of just stepping over him on the way to work makes you really think about what kind of future we're building when the, architect, when the architects of that future are basically being trained to be blind to suffering, right? Like you, basically every day when you're walking around in San Francisco going to and from work, you're encountering homelessness and just... Uh, A lot of, you know, distress that you have to kind of train yourself to become blind to and ignore. Meanwhile, you're at work ostensibly working on the future. And what does that future look like? And I think that's relevant to this Mr. Robot discussion because Elliot himself talks, talks about his realization that the things that he did with technology aren't going to be the miracle solutions to fix society. And he actually tries to have to walk them back. So it's a very timely episode, given all the other things that are going on right now.
1: So much so it's really hard to um, criticize Mr. Robot at all, the series, for uh, not calling it in terms of zeitgeist and still being just a little bit ahead and a little bit predictive, but, but, but not by too much and definitely leaning on things that have actually happened in real life. Uh, What did you think of Irving, one of the new characters that was introduced?
2: I I like the character. I think the actor who is playing Irving uh, is doing a a good job. Uh, Do you happen to know his name, Margaret? You're usually good about things like this.
1: Yeah, so I'm one of the few people who liked HBO's vinyl. (laughs) <laughs> and so his name is Bobby Cannavale, and he played the lead role in Vinyl, and he was in Boardwalk Empire and other things as well. So that's who he is.
2: Yeah, in in another kind of series, his role would be played by uh, Billy Bob Thornton, right? It, to me, it's like that kind of character that Billy Bob Thornton has made really famous on Fargo and some of those other films, where he's a little bit quirky, a little bit odd, prone to exposition about random things, uh, but also kind of a killer and a little bit amoral, and someone who you don't want to get on the bad side of, even though they come across as a little bit goofy.
1: I think that's a great analogy, and a lot of the review sites have been making the comparison to The Fixer from Pulp Fiction, but I have a couple other characters Irving reminds me of. Uh, Did you have any others that you wanted to throw in there before I just jump right in?
2: Go for it. Billy Bob Thornton is really the standout in my mind.
1: I think that's a really great one, and I didn't think that, and I'm a huge... Billy Bob Thornton fan, whether we're talking about Fargo uh, or his, he has a new show on Amazon called Goliath where he plays kind of a good guy or bad guy, but kind of a good guy.
2: He he plays a smarter version of his kooky characters, right? Uh, Smarter, less deadly. Uh, But to me, Billy Bob often has like these kind of three pillars that his characters kind of rotate around is like the kind of killer aspect or the dangerous aspect, the smart, very verbal articulate uh, aspect. And then just a kind of goofy, odd, uh, doesn't quite fit in. Like those are the three things that to me, he kind of plays around
1: with the most. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in addition to the Billy Bob reference, and then other people's reference to the fixer from Pulp Fiction, the other two references I thought of who this character reminded me of, they're super old school. So, um, one of them is this old TV show called Columbo. So it was with uh, Peter Falk and he he played a good guy detective, but he was always sort of really crafty and smarter than the average person. And it reminds me of that a little bit. And then there's an, a film by Terry Gilliam, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called Brazil. And there's a character played by Robert De Niro named Harry Tuttle, where he's again sort of this slipped in and out of scenes and is, uh, sort of kind of a fixer or kind of involved in stuff. So um, lots of precedent, I guess, for Irving.
2: I could see the Columbo thing too, because he kind of has that aesthetic also, like the, the color tones. <laughs> he dressed in like these earthy kind of tones. He kind of seems to live in his own little 70s aesthetic bubble, you know, the car he drives. And I, I think that's actually going to be something that's interesting to observe going forward. And we'll talk about it later is the different timelines that seem to be running uh, in the show.
1: That's a really good point. I mean, I noticed that he had a kind of retro feel Irving that is, but I didn't really put it together so distinctly as you're pointing out. Even his used car he got into to drive away and it it looked like it was from the 70s. It was something my uncle Jack would have driven back in the day. Philly. Philly. Yo.
2: Philly in the house, yo. <laughs>
1: Did you have any other impressions? But before we sort of dig into other details?
2: No, I, I'm excited to see how his character develops. I'm sure what we've seen in the first episode is not gonna uh, be the only thing that we uh, learn about this character. If you think of back to the prior two seasons, usually these characters have some sort of secret or twist that comes later on.
1: Oh, definitely. And I one thing I really liked about this premiere episode for season three is how much we got to hear more from Rami Malek, Alec from Elliot, uh, in terms of just speaking and dialogue so much of season two, he was freaking out (laughs) or talking to himself. And now we're getting to, to see him interact more with the world and be kind of bossy at times. And uh you know uh expressive it's kind of a different side of him i feel like we're seeing
2: he's kind of following the arc of joseph campbell's hero if you have looked into that stuff at all uh where you know you have this person who is set in this particular context or situation who undergoes some sort of struggle that makes him realize that the world is not how he thought it was. And then he's able to go forward with great determination uh, to change things. Um, And Joseph Campbell's work talks about how this hero journey is central to so many myths. uh, All the way up through Star Wars, uh, George Lucas was really influenced by Campbell's work. So Elliot, as an anti-hero of sorts, must be going on this... Uh, kind of hero's journey. I
1: I like that a lot. I think there's something to that. The opening scene, we're at the Red Wheel Barrel Barbecue at 1197 Broadway in New York.
2: You can check out the website. It's live and operational. It's got a PDF menu. Uh, It's uh, pretty interesting how far they're willing to go to blend reality and uh, fiction. Although not so far, Margaret, I noticed as to mess with the terms of service or the privacy policy. Those are legit. Those are real.
1: I checked that out too. Isn't that funny? We're such nerds, Henry.
2: Seriously, NBC Universal. I'm like, okay, well, I guess you couldn't put up a completely fake site because that would pretty, probably trigger liabilities.
1: Oh yeah, not with those lawyers hanging around.
2: But In they home. do. But they do reference ecoin. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was cute. Like they say, you know, we accept ecoin and Bitcoin here.
1: Oh yeah, they the website is really amusing. Um, they also have a section for the kids. Uh, what, what is it called? kids barrow or something which is sort of really funny and oh yeah kid wheelbarrow so there's like the kids version and I love the red wheelbarrow barbecue logo it's it looks like a dumpster fire it's a red wheelbarrow with a f- with flames coming out of it in reference to uh Carla probably burning the book, the journal, maybe, but it's also isn't the world just kind of a giant dumpster fire right now?
2: Seriously. Um and we're kind of uh living in a zone full of fire, so it's kind of maybe top of mind. Uh Sweet. did you notice the little games that the, they had under kid wheelbarrows? Spot the difference in color by numbers. Also two themes that Mr. Robot explores.
1: That is such a good point, And I I would wager anything there are probably some Easter eggs in those experiences as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, but I, th- I think it's uh, it's cute uh, to see how far they went.
1: Also, if you look at the menu and the menu prices, did you notice how inflated the prices were on a lot of things? Like a milkshake was twelve dollars.
2: Margaret, I live in San Francisco. I just, <laughs> honestly, I was just thinking, okay, it's it's high end. You know, I, I've been so trained by San Francisco to consider ridiculous prices normal. It didn't even raise an eyebrow.
1: Oh, that's hilarious because it's something I noticed because, uh, you know, we're we're lucky that we live in the time we live in, I guess, sort of, but our infrastructure is so vulnerable. And recently I was doing a lot of business calls with um, some really nice people who live in South Africa and regularly, at least every single time we were on the call together, they were based in Johannesburg, there would be rolling brownouts. So just, just part of the world, just a part, of every part of the day. And I'm sure that isn't the only place in the world that's happening. But I read it, the prices on the Red Wheelbarrow menu as being starting to become inflated because of, uh, you know, the situation.
2: Oh, yeah, uh, I, th- I think so. That's, I think, a totally correct read. I'm just blinded by the reality <laughs> <laughs> to recognize this. Uh, while we're on the subject of Red Wheelbarrow and the Mysteries, did you notice that the neon sign was out on even during the blackout uh, for the restaurant. So how did that work? Like, how did they have, how were they running the neon sign if the power was out? Did they have their own generator?
1: Either that or Elliot did reference later on that it is a dark army hangout, or maybe it doesn't really exist.
2: It's another one of these fictitious places, right? Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Did you like how Irving was sort of interrogating the poor woman who was working the register about, their policy for the punch card?
2: Well, as a punch card user myself, (laughs) I find this policy extremely annoying. So I could actually relate to this. Um, Yes. Uh, this has been a frequent uh, source of annoyance for me. I feel like Larry David or George Costanza and these punch cards, like it's my windmill to tilt at for my entire life. <laughs> will accept it. Once I have all the punches punched, take the damn card, give me my prize. So are
1: you the kind of person who would argue for the prize without having to do another visit or criticize the faulty logic?
2: Well, so when you're presented with that situation, you can either just say, okay and not say anything else or you can do something right like that's the first fork in the road so if you're one of those people that's going to do something the question is really how crazy are you going to get and what's the purpose? Are you, are you doing it just to like vent and act out and like let out some rage? Are you trying to channel it constructively? Are you trying to like connect with the person on the other side of the counter and like have a human moment? Like what what's the point, right? And I think actually Irving didn't take it as crazy as I thought he was going to. You know, he basically said, he did the first thing that you do in these situations in customer service, you don't surrender your spot like as soon as you get out of line you social norms dictate that you cannot get your grievance redressed again so you have to stand there and you have to not move once they give you the answer so first thing he did was okay i got your answer i'm not gonna move i'm gonna stand here and continue to engage with you right and then i thought the brilliant part was that he took the call and just made her wait (laughs) while he talked about something that seemed really kind of menacing and you could see the actress's expression go through this great shift where she goes from annoyance to should i be uh ready to duck behind the counter Like, this guy might be crazy. And you can see how relieved she is when she actually walks away.
1: Yeah, that call came just in time. But I think that Irving really summed up how he felt where he said, when we lose our principles, we invite chaos. And I have to say, I probably would have been the person to argue with her that that way. I I wouldn't do it every time. I know sometimes you have to choose your battles. Is it better to be right or to be happy? (laughs) But I definitely would be the one who would, I would just walk through the logic just like he did. And I would probably say something like he did. Maybe not as cool as uh, inviting chaos, but I think that's a commentary on the situation at large about, I mean, look, our our own transportation system was just a victim of ransomware just a few months ago, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, our infrastructure is really vulnerable to chaos um, and the agents of chaos. So, it, it, yeah, I think there's a collective action issue that, you know, is such a fun. I don't want to make it too meta. And I just want to point out that what he says about inviting chaos is very, very similar to what George Costanza used to scream about (laughs) in terms of we live in a society, people, society has rules right? Like this is in the same spirit. And uh, I think given the show's prior reference to Seinfeld, it's relevant.
1: That's pretty funny. I have to watch a couple episodes of Seinfeld just to know what it's about. I've honestly maybe only ever seen one episode in my life, but that's cool. Uh, And that's a great comparison. And I know all the characters you're talking about because my mother loves to quote George as well that character. Uh, But Irving gets a call, and we assume it's from the Dark Army. We don't know who, necessarily, maybe. Did, Did you know who it was, or does it matter?
2: I think it's Tyrell. Um oh, Terrell right. called him to come uh, help him out with the body. So he's calling, he's hysterical, and he's like, okay, calm down. And the next scene, he, that's where he is.
1: Very good point. I should have put that together. And so, of course, I love how Irving, when he, he sees Elliot bleeding out, he kind of comments on how his abs are in really good shape. Nice abs. <laughs> And it's crazy to see Terrell so upset. I would have not expected him to be as upset as he was.
2: And this scene is significant for me because it just confirms that Terrell is real, right? I mean, even with all the stuff going on in season two, to me, there was still some question, like, is it was it just all big hallucination? Who knows? Uh, but to see Terrell interacting with someone else who we just observed interacting with someone else, so vouch for on many levels that this is a real person having a real interaction with a different person
1: which i think is awesome because i i really like the character of tyrell as well so i'm glad he's real and i'm still kind of bummed mr robot quote unquote is not real so so to speak but anyway back to irving he he gets on the phone with someone he writes down angela's name to contact her And he takes a photo of Elliot lying on the ground. And at first I thought it was to frame Terrell, but Terrell's not in in the photo. So maybe it was just to document it. But at the same time, it is kind of, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to photograph me without my knowledge at a vulnerable point like that.
2: And that photo is the same photo that White Rose later looks at when he's talking to his uh, Lieutenant. Uh, So perhaps that's an indication that the two of them are working together.
1: Good point, good catch there as well. And I I felt like this episode was packed with so much cool stuff that it was, I definitely had to watch it twice to catch up on everything or not even everything but but uh we do get to see white rose but as as minister Zhang, and i like that he called elliot a crazy little goose
2: it's a term of endearment
1: (laughs) and then we meet a new character Uh, i don't know if his character has a name but his assistant uh played by i think grant chang is the actor's name and he wants to take over and initiate stage two because he's like, these people are crazy, dude. What's going on?
2: Yeah, and then White Rose kind of breaks it down for him that these aren't just some random crazy people, that these are people with connections to the project. And it's significant for White Rose just because there are no coincidences. He doesn't believe in them. So it seems like he believes in a version of fate, of sorts, or maybe it's a knowledge of the future. Uh, Who's to say?
1: And there are a lot of references to controlling or directing Elliot's energy. And here White Rose references Elliot's focused rage. His will must be our guide. And so there's a lot of faith being placed in Elliot. I really have a pretty strong feeling. I know where this is heading, but I will not spoil it.
2: It reminds me of another show and Margaret, you can cut this later if it's uh, giving away too much, Uh, 12 Monkeys, where people are sent back from the past to uh, affect the present or sometime in the 21st or 20th century uh, and to kind of change the future, but then also make sure that a certain version of the future they want still happens. And so part of the show involves people manipulating people who are important to the future to kind of help them get to where they're supposed to go by fate but make sure they're going in a way that actually serves the vision of the future that they're trying to create.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a really interesting theory.
2: And the way that they talk about characters in that show, 12 Monkeys, is similar to how White Rose talks about Elliot in the scene.
1: And you're speaking specifically about his will must be our guide and then he what do you you think white rose meant when she said he can die with us just like his father
2: well i I mean his father was working on the project uh before uh, he died and i think to me i just took it as we'll make sure that he doesn't outlive his usefulness like we'll use him to get what we want and then he can die for this project, just like his father.
1: I think that is a very good theory, and probably that's that is the correct theory. So, do you want to hear what my theory is? No, tell me. He can die with us, just like his father. I think they're all going to get rid of all of humanity as organic beings, and they're all going to create a new race of humans that are just AI. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's what I think.
2: All right, let's let's see. That's a very uh, Matrixy. It's interesting.
1: In this scene with white rose and the assistant someday we'll know his name they're being encouraged to speak in english because practice makes perfect and julie andrews is playing starts to play in the background which i thought was nice and this is where the opening scene where we eventually see it's elliot waking up in bed and we see he's still alive but that whole whole camera action of just seeing this beautiful shot image with the titles Playing and then it's pulling back, pulling back, and it looks like it's inside of Elliot's eye that it's pulling back from, the camera. Did you get that sense?
2: Do you think it's some sort of visual illusion to the fact that he was having a dream of sorts or it's all in his head?
1: Yeah, I think there's some allusion to that because throughout this whole episode, rightly or wrongly, Elliot says, I'm the only thing that matters. I'm the only one with the power and everyone else says the same thing too. So there's some kind of centering on Elliot as being the key and he knows it because he wakes up and he says I'm the one in control I'm the one in power and then that illusion is pretty much broken down right away as we get to the end of the scene but we this is the first time we see how much people's lives are affected with no electricity for example
2: yeah And for me when I look at scenes like the like these uh, I think about when I was living in New York and there was a blackout in 2003 that lasted for about three days um 2002 or 2003 and so for me like i just kind of extrapolate that out more and i'm actually surprised at how functional society is in mr robot's version of a powerless uh powerless city um I felt like after three or four days, people were starting to unravel a bit in New York.
1: I could not agree with you anymore. I very much remember that power blackout. I was not in the city for when that happened. But a few years later, when I was living in New York, uh, I was living in Queens, and there was a power outage in Queens because of, oh gosh, was it a hurricane or what have you? And by the way, I'm looking out in my window now, and the sun is setting, and it's bright orange. So that's kind of crazy. And it's Friday the 13th. Whoa. Okay. Uh, but but we had the power out in Queens. Our apartment wasn't affected, but the whole surrounding area was weirdly affected. So like our street was spared for some reason. And I saw things devolving at a level. It was horrendous. Uh, I mean, just rotting, rotting food on the streets. People running, people who had generators running generators. It was really gnarly and it was really hot. It was during the summer, so it was really humid. And you're right. I saw these scenes in Mr. Robot and I thought to myself, this looks like a couple days in I mean, look what's happening in in Puerto Rico right now. I mean, I know it's different circumstances, but the infrastructure is fragile.
2: Yeah, and people just riding buses around. That just seemed completely unrealistic to me. Like, I feel like a few weeks into a power outage, buses would not just be going through the streets of New York. Like, I, I hope they would, but I'm just kind of skeptical.
1: I definitely felt that way as well. And that's telling. And it was really striking, though, when we thought think of the previous seasons to see this season where everything's candle lit it was a huge difference um we found out Tyrell is the one who dropped Elliot off Elliot's in for a rude awakening but uh did you have any other impressions about his interactions with Angela uh
2: not not so much I mean I think overall to the episode I thought there was a lot there to process this particular interaction was still fairly early in the episode I feel like This initial interaction, they kept things from getting a little bit too weird um, to kind of set the stage for things to come. Um, But it was just more about like putting, letting our guard down, letting us trust that this is actually him. He's actually having a conversation with her and kind of allowing us to get a little bit settled in.
1: Definitely. And he needed to borrow a shirt because he had to leave and try to stop this whole horrible thing that Elliot feels like he initiated it with the 5-9 hack. And he has to wear a property of Josh Groban shirt, which is humiliating and yet hilarious.
2: I feel like it should be a drinking game to watch Mr. Robot every time Elliot storms off saying that he's the only one who can fix the problem. You have to take a shot at something. Because it seems like it happens at least once an episode where something happens and Elliot says, I'm the only one that can fix this. I need to get over somewhere that's probably incredibly stupid for him to go to. Like he basically places himself into voluntary jeopardy once per episode because he thinks he's the only one who can fix something.
1: There's a lot of focus on Elliot by himself and by others about his essential role. And I felt that a little bit when he was with Darlene and Irving, where Irving kept trying to dismiss Darlene and definitely feeling for Darlene in that case. And you wonder why is so much attention focused on Elliot for sure. So Elliot goes back to the scene of the crime and he sees that everything's been sort of destroyed and broken down. He thinks Mr. Robot is gone. Everything was sort of deconstructed and they probably did that to hide evidence. Did they do it because we're in a different timeline? Then we saw the preacher talking about the mark of the beast. So all that relevance.
2: Yeah, and just kind of leading up to Elliot's infamous monologue, if you go by uh, social media, uh, where uh, Elliot's walking down the street and actually speaking the words of the monologue to us. I wonder if that's something that uh, Rami Malek wrote himself. Uh, You had talked about how he had more of a creative world. I wonder if there was some sort of symbolism to him actually speaking the words uh, as well.
1: Yeah, it could be. I definitely get the sense they're really collaborative on the show with the main uh, folks, uh, Rami Malek, Christian Slater, and Sam Esmail. Uh, Ellie goes back to his apartment and he we suddenly meet his landlord, or it's a new landlord. It's a pretty famous actor named Josh Mostel, for whatever that's worth. His name is Bo. And... He's pretty nice landlord, considering Elliot probably isn't the greatest tenant. And that's where Elliot first encounters Darlene. And of course, she's mad at him, but she's also very afraid for her safety. And Darlene's asking him a lot of questions. What did you think about that?
2: Throughout this whole interaction, I was asking myself, is Darlene working with the feds? Is
1: she uh, maybe wearing a wire? I had the impression she was wearing a wire too, but it didn't take long for them to put on their hoodies and head out to the hacker club.
2: I want to go to a hacker club like that hacker club, especially when there's a, a blackout. So that's another thing I was thinking was, how is all this working if there's a blackout?
1: I thought a lot about this. So first of all, I saw the casting call in New York City. I think I sent that around to you. They were looking for actors to stand in or just regular people who look like geeks for some scenes. And I'm sure this was the scene they were recording. But yeah, it was a pretty cool hacker club, probably more lively than than a lot of them. There was a DEF CON logo on the wall, sort of symbolic that they are the only ones with the power. They're sort of like the new elite, like the techno elite.
2: Oh, so you think that they somehow
1: hacked uh, into the power grid and found a way to power uh, power. That's interesting theory. They were having a capture the flag competition, which we know is very common with hacker groups.
2: Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool to see... Uh... Elliot kind of interacting with people much more uh, socially at ease than he would in any other situation, right? Like this is Elliot kind of being alpha dog, being in an environment where he knows he's one of the best uh, versus his body language and posture when he's in other settings where it's just basically like, don't look at me, don't talk to me, I'm not gonna talk to you.
1: Yes, and even though Elliot did opt to put on the mute button, In in the scene and, uh, you know, don't we all wish we had a mute button? So there's some kind of symbolism there that he was able to do that. And was it just in his mind? Can he really do that? Love that one of the hackers was bragging that he was a cyber patriot finalist in middle school. That was hilarious. I've never participated in a capture the flag event. Have you, Henry? No. But for those listeners who are interested a capture the flag event is basically when different teams it's usually teams will will group up and try to hack each other's network and it's a race to the finish to see who can defend their network from from infiltrators. It's kind of considered a sport and while it there's the big yearly competition in Las Vegas at the Defcon conference uh, there are also lots of parallels in the world of eSports not that uh, eSports players are hacking but that, computer activities are taking on the vibe of like a sport or an olympic style event
2: yeah and i think that has a lot of interesting implications for society or it reflects a lot of interesting trends in society like i was seeing a statistic about how majority of americans are obese um and like there's 10 times as much childhood obesity as there was in the 1970s right so we're a more sedentary culture so A shift towards ways that we can compete while still being sedentary is going to be driven by this demographic change. And so a time in which you can compete while sitting instead of running outside, esports and things like this fall nicely into that niche.
1: Yeah, and I'm not a hacker by any means. I did catch some of the things that Elliot was instructing the one programmer guy to do, he was trying to tell the guy that he needs to hack the server side key. And he told the guy that you need to, to determine where the mines are on the full board. And from that, you can derive the server side key. It reminded me of that game Minesweep. Remember that old game Minesweep where you figure out where the holes are in the board anyway, and you can kind of figure out the logic of the board. Elliot finally took command of the computer He was trying to shut down this whole hack, and he started to shut down the backdoor by first hacking the registrar and changing name server configurations that gave Tyrell's computer access to all of this backdoor network.
2: You brought back some memories with the Minesweep. (laughs) Minesweeper comment. uh, Yeah, one of two pre-installed games on Windows machines, uh, Solitaire and Minesweeper. And I think Minesweeper was most uh, the most ignored one of the bunch just because a lot of people couldn't figure out how to play it you click on a tile and it'll give you a number and that's supposed to indicate like the number of bombs within like the adjacent tiles and use that information to piece it together
1: yeah that was a fun game i really like that game
2: <laughs> fell into the minority i think
1: yeah <laughs> Well, when I'm not playing my solitaire, I'll play my sweeper, I guess. Darlene has a panic attack in this totally remarkably empty bathroom, even though the whole place is packed with people. Everybody's too busy hacking. And then, of course, she seems like they walk right into the hands of the Dark Army. It just seems like, I don't know, I, I mean, could she have worn a wig or a disguise? I don't know. Maybe she wouldn't have gotten into the club, but it seems like... She probably felt like she had no other choice. But as they're they're escaping the hawker club, which uh, they encounter Irving, who saves them from potentially falling into the hands of the FBI. So yet another sign, Darlene is setting Elliot up.
2: Wasn't Darlene trying to call someone for help when she was in the bathroom?
1: Yeah, who do you think that might have been? Do you think that would have been Angela?
2: I think she was trying to call the FBI. Like her handler at the FBI. You're right. Um, and you know the whole scene with the bathroom. I mean, it's kind of funny on one level because one, uh, the women's bathroom at tech events probably less crowded <laughs> than at other types of events, but probably unrealistic unre- in the depiction of how clean <laughs> a bathroom is. I mean, you go to a lot of tech events, Margaret. Are the women's bathrooms immaculate and empty like that one?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They are, and they're cleaner than the men's bathrooms. Don't ask me how I know that.
2: So, there you go. I mean, that's actually yet again Mr. Robot setting the marks for authenticity.
1: (laughs) The taxi that Irving has, he seems to just be able to hack into cars. Is this thing? Like, I don't think he owns any of these cars, but the sign on the taxi said seven times 23 or seven ba x 23. He pulls up. And then he goes into the national database for the New York, New York, that New York state is a part of and calls on Star to disable the, vict- the vehicle following them.
2: So, you know, 7 by 23 is a prime pair. I didn't realize that until you pointed it out, but prime pairs have all sorts of cryptographic significance.
1: Ooh. So anyway. That's neat. And then 23 has the sort of conspiracy. Well, seven is a mystical number and 23 has all these hidden conspiracy theory meanings too. So, so,
2: so it's a prime pair of significance, right? Uh, seven is mm-hmm. a prime number, 23 is a prime number. Both of them have kind of mystical or numerological meanings. And what does it, uh, when you take a prime pair and you multiply them together, you get a larger prime number. Um, and so kind of inter- interesting to think about that symbolism.
1: Are you kidding? I love it. I think that's awesome. And, you know, we saw how Irving was able to fool OnStar to disabling the vehicle. That is something, as I'm sure you know, that's taken out of real life. OnStar has been used by people who are wanting to steal cars, and it's also has been used by law enforcement. So that's completely out of reality. And that's just our future, by the way. When we all have driverless cars, I predict you're gonna need a special license to drive that is not as easily obtainable as it is now.
2: Well, that's interesting to think about and whether that license will be harder than one to get a gun, (laughs) right? It's kind of interesting to think about a future in which a license to drive a car is harder to get than a license to own a gun. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, that's our future. Well, Um,
2: another element that's kind of timely from real life, uh, California state legislature talking about driverless car regulations. It's also being talked about at the national level. It seems like driverless cars are going to be here much faster than the transition to electric cars. Uh, took for instance like I first started hearing about electric cars hitting the mainstream like what in the 90s right like in the 80s there was no real strong electric car alternative it was only like kind of in the late 90s uh, yeah early 2000s that you started hearing about the Prius and things like this Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you think about modern car culture from like the 50s to the 90s it took 40 years of gasoline development before we got electric cars and then electric cars to driverless cars looks like it's going to be under 30 years it's a pretty rapid acceleration
1: it's going to come upon us faster than we think and i'm sure you've seen the driverless cars going around here in the bay area i sure have a few times
2: yeah i have Uh, i've seen them uh, in a number of places i think uh Driverless cars are interesting. I think driverless trucks probably will have a deeper economic impact than driverless cars, at least in the next 40 to 50 years.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. My goodness, all those people who uh, can no longer drive trucks can either work at Foxconn or get a coal mining job, Henry. Huh. So,
2: I mean, seriously, if you think about, it's going to be this kind of micro economy, or maybe not so micro, but it's this economy that has, you know, truck stops and all these other kind of other businesses that exist around the business of logistics and trucking. And a lot of that, if it gets automated, goes away.
1: And it's going to create such desolate parts of the country unless we figure out something to do to address that pit stops and all the towns and the hotels and the diners that survive because of that kind of traffic. So we go back to the red wheelbarrow barbecue with Irving there. And this is where he's very condescending to Darlene where he's like, miss, can you get us some drinks and a couple of number fours and make sure my punch card is punched. I just thought of another reference to the punch card. That's an old school style of computing, right? Like the punch card computing.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, So. I never, I didn't think about that, but yeah, the punch card, uh, punch card computing, uh, when computers were as big as buildings Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, Hidden Figures uh, talks about how uh, some of the calculators that were human calculators eventually started driving the, started working with the computers at NASA to do a lot of calculations uh, that way. And also early cryptography was uh, largely done by uh, computers, machines.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is where Elliot says, "I'm done with the plan and Irving seems to acquiesce. That's kind of suspicious. I think it's humorous. We find out Irving is working on a book. <laughs> It's like, what what doesn't this guy do? And then this is where after they, they encounter each other and Elliot thinks he's off the hook, he thinks stage two is done. Everyone seems to be in on convincing Elliot of this. This is where Elliot's walking through his street, the street with his monologue where he says, the invisible hand is like a fist that punched us in the dick, <laughs> like a botnet spreading fear that is airborne.
2: It, you know, with Eminem in the news this week, I thought... Elliot was pretty Eminem-ish in this monologue. Like I could definitely see this being set to a beat. And uh, yeah, I could see Eminem doing this in a different video.
1: Me too. They pack a star fight into a product and then they flash to a bunch of different logos. Uh, One of them you see Walmart and Google when he's talking about conglomerates. And then they flash to a TV show on NBC with the NBC sound called Shift Control (laughs) about F Society. (laughs) So the total commodification of our world and our lives, because at the end of the day in capitalism, we're the commodities, right? When we're on Facebook, we're the product, not Facebook, we're the product.
2: And this is something that happened to the internet itself in terms of corporate co-option. When the internet and the web was kind of hitting the mainstream in the mid-90s, a lot of pundits talked about how it's going to revolutionize society, democratize information, allow for egalitarian access to not only uh, information, but all sorts of other resources. And you look at that early kind of utopian rhetoric and where we are now, and like all the bots on Twitter and all the fake news saturating our social networks and Trump is president. Mm -hmm. You think about like that early vision in the mid nineties to what our society looks like now. And it's hard to actually think that that early promise was actually realized. And so somewhere along the way, as these early tech companies involved with the internet and the web started attracting venture capital from Wall Street and other financial institutions and became billionaires in the process, that's the very definition of corporate co-option, right? Like you basically have the banking sector and the financial sector buying huge interests in this disruptive technology, making a few people uh, elite and rich so that they will then kind of, you know, suppress everything else.
1: Yeah, and for folks who haven't been researching this that much, research some of the things that people like Peter Thiel, for example, have been up to and firms like Cambridge Analytica, for example, and how they've monetized us and our democracy and and what have you. We're in the midst of this sort of VR horror show that Elliot's talking about where we're trading revolution for oppression because we caved. What have we all caved, including him? And it's all his fault. And we're building our own prison. And we see images of the wall, quote, unquote, the wall. Elliot says, it's time for me to go work at Evil Corp. He begs or asks Angela for help getting a job. He realizes she's kind of not into him the way she was before romantically, it seemed. But he already hacked her socially because she. he says, well, this is Angela. She doesn't love people who love her, which is such a tell.
2: Yeah, but it's also a very kind of, it's a cruel statement in some ways. And it's also kind of an over simplistic assessment. It seems like Elliot kind of looks at human beings as a set of rules or conditions and thinks that you can easily explain people with these kind of if-then or all-or-none sort of rule sets. Uh, and I think he's doing the same with Angela, completely missing the fact that she is having a relationship with Mr. Robot in his own body, like for someone who thinks that he knows her so well.
1: He is the ultimate unreliable narrator, and when we finally see Mr. Robot appears for the first time. And now he's full evil, at least in my mind, against our protagonist, Elliot, if we want to see it that way. And, you know, he wants to destroy Elliot as much as Elliot wants to to destroy him, which is sort of a new sort of intensity. And Angela says, we'll just find a way to redirect his energy when she finally shows us that she's somehow in cahoots with with Mr. Robot. I thought the scene on the bus was amazing.
2: Yeah, and I think if that answered questions for me about how Christian Slater is going to be used in episodes to come, because this idea of like, well, how are they going to use him after he's revealed to be kind of an imaginary person? How are they going to use him in scenes? Because you can only do so many scenes where Elliot's just kind of imagining him in his head. A lot of season two, were scenes basically of Mr. Robot only with Elliot. So how do you get Mr. Robot's character out of that kind of one for one dynamic into kind of interactions with other characters? And I thought it was really cool how they basically allowed Christian Slater to sit there and be in Elliot's spot. And that answered the question for me
1: uh, in a really nice way. And there is a website e-coin.com where you can sign up for your own cryptocurrency, your e-coin currency. I definitely think it's interesting when I hear Wright Rose say she wants to take humanity to the next level and that Angela is fully bought into that scenario.
2: Let's do the which would you choose game.
1: Okay, which uh, would you choose game?
2: So uh, do you have one for me this week?
1: I have a bunch that I wrote. I thought it was the either or game, <laughs> but I have a bunch.
2: Choose choose, choose uh, your best one. Let's do one each.
1: Okay, my best one. All right. Mr. Robot or Elliot?
2: Mr. Robot. For me, uh, Mr. Robot, because... And I was just thinking about this when you said that Mr. Robot's pure evil, because at the end of the day, he has to keep Elliot alive if he is going to accomplish what he's set out to accomplish, right? And so I believe – so re, despite – no matter how evil he gets, there's a certain threshold where you can't go too far against Elliot's self-interest because they share a common interest in preserving that flesh vessel that they both share, right? So – And he's also more ruthless. Like Elliot, to me, uh, can be a little bit indecisive and a little bit kind of uh, lost in his own head. Or it seems like Mr. Robot has a certain clarity of vision. Um, And so for the time being, my answer will be Mr. Robot, because I think he gets shit done.
1: Uh, All right. And I will choose Elliot because he has fabulous abs, which cannot be ignored. And... I guess he's just the protagonist and he's the good guy. And I and I do identify with him as sort of the anti-hero. So that's my answer. Okay. Uh,
2: and I got one for you. Facebook or Twitter?
1: Oh. oh, so from a personal love, it's Twitter. I love Twitter. Um, from a viability, um, I'll go Twitter.
2: Okay. I would say Twitter also, but I think... And I was talking to someone else about this this week, about how Facebook and Twitter have gone in very different directions since around 2012 ish, (laughs) like in our industry, like there was a time in which Facebook was kind of seen as kind of a has been, like there was a social gaming, the the web, Facebook gaming scene, web-based games. And then when the iPhone app store launched and things shifted over to mobile, Facebook really didn't figure out how to exist in that new ecosystem. And so like 2012, 2013 like Facebook was kind of seen as an irrelevant joke almost Uh, whereas Facebook was uh, Twitter I'm sorry was kind of up and coming it was just it was on the way to IPO and then shortly thereafter soon just IPO'd and made some smart acquisitions in the mobile ad space with MoPub and it seemed like Twitter was kind of on the rise. Did you get that sense also?
1: Uh, I did not get that sense, but I'm glad to hear that perspective because I I think it's a more interesting platform.
2: But since then, I think Facebook has completely outperformed Twitter Mm -hmm. and Twitter has kind of, I don't know, lost its way a bit. Like its stock is underperformed. It's not very, uh, it's not doing well in the space that investors like to see with namely advertising revenue. Facebook is just crushing it with advertising revenue. Twitter has been struggling. Uh, aside from sports and politics, uh, it's not clear that Twitter has engagement, very strong engagement outside those things. It doesn't seem like people who are using Twitter will do things to the same degree that Facebook users are willing to do things on their platform. And I think it's kind of a UI UX question. You hear things about internal shakeups and things like that. Um, It's it's interesting to see how the paths have differed.
1: On the books, Facebook is a much more successful company because their ad targeting software is so much more effective, although I don't use it anymore for a lot of reasons. Uh, And the way they price certain things, I think, are illogical. The reason I love Twitter is that the discoverability algorithm on Twitter, even though it serves me things that I'll be interested in, it's not the complete, vast, utter echo chamber that Facebook is in terms of discoverability and exposing information.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know, to me interesting that people sometimes forget that Facebook is so valuable and so successful as a company and one of the most efficient at creating huge revenue with such a small workforce because of selling ads. And why is it good at selling ads? Because it's able to use the information that it has about its users to both target very effectively and charge a premium and develop and develop, uh, deliver ads that have relevance. And you know, when you watch shows like Mr. Robot and Elliot's going on about the way in which we're being controlled and manipulated, and how advertisement media falls into this, and we live in a reality where it looks increasingly likely that Russia used social media platforms to influence voters to achieve their intelligence outcomes. It's uh, it's an interesting world, you know, and to me, like these things are all interconnected.
1: I think so too. And I'm so glad we're doing this podcast again. And I have to thank all of our new subscribers. We've had many more new subscribers even in the past 24 hours. So I'm super grateful for that. And we have a new email address, the hello friend podcast at gmail.com. Very nice, elegant, short email address. If you have any comments, please write us there. We do have a Facebook page. Eh. I have issues with the page because unless you give them money, they don't really let the people who like the page discover anything I post there. So I'm a little bit turned off on it, but we'll be introducing more features and a, a more robust website where we can all gather if you want to give more feedback, but thanks for the feedback already. If you want to review us or give us a rating in iTunes, That also helps with the discoverability algorithms and gets us to the top of the charts or closer to the top of the charts. But this has been really fun. Henry, did you have anything else you want to say or any thoughts about next week or what this season portends?
2: I want to close with uh, the word for this podcast episode. I want to start doing like a word per each episode that kind of sums it up and that we can kind of uh, talk about. Um, And for me, it's apophenia, A-P-O-P-H-E-N-I-A, which you can think about as the tendency to be overwhelmed by meaningful coincidences. Um, And I think that's you see that on display with White Rose and with other people in Mr. Robot, but it's also something that's kind of uh, a word for our times, right? Where we live in a, a world full of fake news and conspiracy theories and people who are just a little bit overwhelmed by meaningful coincidences.
1: And I will throw in a really random word. I like this, by the way. This is a fun segment. I'm going to say frenetic because I felt like so much was moving at a really frenetic pace. And it was moving in that way in terms of personal relationships, in terms of what's happening in the world, in terms of parallels to what's happening in our world, as well as just... movement of the story itself so everything felt frenetic uh kind of like blade runner kind of like san francisco right now in the midst of the worst wildfires in history so i guess it all ties together in one neat dystopian bow henry
2: season two was a little bit slow we never really left that prison but season three looks like it's going to be frenetic as you said i think it's pretty far reaching
1: yes well i'm so thankful that we're talking about it again and i will talk to you soon henry
0: all right. Thanks, Margaret. Looking Take forward care. to it.
1: Take care.
0: Right. Bye. This dark future that I set into motion, who knows what could come from this? Thank you. Thank you very much. What if instead of fighting back, we can give away our privacy for security, exchange dignity for safety, trade in revolution for repression? What if we choose weakness over strength? These are not the people that made our country great. These are the people that are destroying our country. They'll even have us build our own prison. This is what they wanted all along, for us to buy in on our worst selves. And I just made it easier for them. I didn't start a revolution. I just made us docile enough for their slaughtering. And I can stand here and blame Evil Corp and every other conglomerate out there for taking advantage of us. Blame the FBI, NSA, CIA for letting them get away with this. Blame all the world's leaders for aiding and abetting them. Blame Adam Smith for inventing modern-day capitalism in the first fucking place. Blame money for dividing us. Blame us for letting it. But none of that's true. The truth is... I'm the one to play.